Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today's episode is a little bit different. I'd like to introduce everyone to a new podcast called Preaching Christ. As I'm sure everyone is aware already, what Christians should know is focused on Bible teaching, but my other podcast, Preaching Christ, is focused on Christ preaching. There are links in the podcast description if you'd like to hear more sermons like the one you're about to hear today. Now, Preaching Christ has been up and running for a while, but certainly it'll be new to you if you've never tuned in and listened before. We'll be posting a sermon every Friday during the month of January to give you a sample of what Preaching Christ has to offer. I hope you will follow the links, download, share, and subscribe. I'd invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 5 as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 5 verses 1 to 3. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. The NASB says... Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Please be seated. So church, we serve a God who is ideal, but we live our Christian experience in the midst of a world that is less than ideal. And a fact of life is that reality frustrates the full joy of the godly person. We can become fearful, we can become frustrated, either because we consider the wickedness of the world as a whole or if we are the victims of that wickedness itself. There is therefore felt need, there is therefore yearning, there is therefore deficiency when a godly person lives in the middle of an ungodly world. And that is where Psalm number 5 comes in. Because it equips us with encouragement and hope in the midst of adversity. And even when there's no answer immediately in sight, what Psalm number 5 equips us with is the affirmation that God is righteous and that ultimately in the end, he will triumph. Now, the author of Psalm number 5 is King David. 
And when we look at Psalm number five as a whole, we don't know the specific adversity that David was in. We just know he was in adversity. We just know he was in a tight corner. And in Psalm number five, King David prays and asks for three specific things. He asks that God lead him in his will. He asks that God judge the wicked. And he asks that God protects the righteous. Those are three pretty general things, which tells us what? Psalm number five can apply to life in general. Now, Psalm number five, we're going to tackle in two different Sunday mornings. They're going to be two different parts of the series. Today, we're going to tackle verses one to three. And the title of this morning's sermon is The Seven Steps of Prayer Preparation. Because in Psalm five, verses one to three, David actually prepares to pray. He gets ready to pray before he actually starts praying in verses four to twelve. And although God delivered Psalm number 5, verses 1 to 3, in the context of Psalm number 5, the steps David takes to prepare for prayer doesn't just apply to Psalm number 5. It applies to life in general. And here's what the seven steps of prayer preparation will do. It's going to boost your understanding of what God requires of you, what God requires of us before we pray. Because if we're better prepared, we can therefore better execute and therefore acquire better results under the will of God. So the seven steps of prayer preparation, step number one. Realize that prayer is not a game. Prayer is never, ever, ever a game. Don't follow Nike's advice and just do it. Don't just do prayer any old way because prayer isn't a game. Realize, church, that Jesus Christ died. He was crucified to earn his children the right to have free access to God the Father in prayer. And how a person responds to the statement, prayer is not a game, gives me insight into how far along you've progressed in your sanctification, how far along you've progressed in your Christian growth. Because if you say, yay and amen, pastor, prayer is not a game. That tells me you now appreciate the power. You now appreciate the, the conviction involved in prayer that God uses it to not only transform you, but transform the world around me. If you're someone that simply shrugs your shoulders to the assertion that prayer is not a game, that tells me you've yet to embrace the life-transforming power that God has ordained in prayer. The Bible is clear. The greater the saints, 
The greater the individual that God uses for his purposes, the greater their prayer life. And nothing else better determines our standing as Christians than our prayer life. Why? Because it's unregulated. It's something you do in private. No one's going to check in on you and give you a grade. It's something you voluntarily do, something you voluntarily undertake in the privacy of your own home. And as we mature, and as we grow, and as we begin examining ourselves more, what happens? We now realize how helpless we are. We now realize how needy we are. We now realize how much we need God, so that self-examination now compels us. It nudges us to pray, because prayer is not a game. God is a God of means. This means God will do what he says he will, but he uses the means of prayer. Because a fact of reality, beloved, is that nothing in life ever changes unless you or I actually do something. And in the context of becoming more Christ-like, in becoming more and more holy, the means by which that is accomplished is prayer. And when we make connection to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, he talks about praying in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? That sounds very churchy. Pray in the Spirit. Walk by the... What does that mean in, in, in English? Praying in the Spirit is, has an awareness that prayer is not a game. Meaning, when we pray in the Spirit, we realize we are praying to God who is a Spirit. We're praying to God who is different than us. He is other. He is holy. We therefore don't approach prayer any old way because we're praying to God. Praying in the Spirit means we realize we're not just in our prayer closets. We're not just in a prayer meeting. We are in the presence of God. And when you realize that, it becomes crystal clear that prayer is not a game. Step two, true prayer has pressure. True prayer has pressure, meaning true prayer is urgent. There's a sense of urgency to the prayers that you make. Look at the words David uses. He says, give ear. He says, consider. He says, hear the sound. These are imperatives. He's not giving God commands, but there's an urgency to the words that he is using. David was intensely serious because this is what adversity does. It actually drives you to pray with pressure because the times for game is over because the situation around you is intensely serious. Therefore, the words have conviction. The words have animation behind them because true prayer has pressure. True prayer also doesn't necessarily have to use words. 
What does David say in Psalm 5, verse 1? He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. What does that word mean? It means sighing, meditation in thought and process. This tells us that true prayer can use words, but it doesn't have to. Because true prayer can be heard, it can also be felt. Let me give you an example. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah was the mother of the prophet Samuel. Hannah was under pressure. She was stressed. She was so stressed, she couldn't even use words. And as she sat in the temple, her lips were moving, but she wasn't saying anything. Guess what? God heard her prayer. The prayer that she, that she made was under pressure. It was a prayer that was felt, and God heard her. Sometimes adversity can, can crush you so badly, you can't even speak. But guess what? God is so good, he hears the words of your heart. So David says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. And David asks God to hear one prayer and consider the other. Because guess what? If God only hears your prayers but doesn't consider your words, that's an empty prayer. Hear, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Because David knows that God hears both the inner thoughts and the outer words. So the seven steps of prayer preparation, step number two, is true prayer has pressure. Step number three, true prayer is prepared. True prayer is prepared. Genuine prayer expresses a well-known and informed familiarity with the Lord and a comprehensive knowledge of Him as revealed in His Word. Psalm number one says the blessed person is what? Like a tree, meaning they have roots, they have an anchor in the Word of God. They now bear fruit, and that fruit has substance. True prayer that is prepared means the words that we use have to have substance. The words that we use have to have content. True prayer that is prepared means we can't use words that don't have any roots, that don't have any backing behind them. Because words that have no roots are not words that are prepared. What does this mean? It means the language that we use in prayer has to be prepared and have substance. Where do we find words of substance? In the Word of God. Especially in the book of Psalms. We're guaranteed those words have roots because those words aren't our words, they're God's words. 
True prayer is prepared. So how do we prepare biblically? Again, going back to Psalm 1, we meditate on the Word of God. We meditate, we murmur, we speak out loud, we digest, we think upon God's Word. Meditation now fills our prayer engines so that we have the fuel to execute and animate our prayers. As George Swinock once said, the Puritan, he said, meditation is the best beginning of prayer and prayer is the best conclusion of meditation. Prepared prayer means that we must begin thinking about what we're going to pray about. Listen, I love everyone here. I would never ever think about getting up here on a Sunday and not preparing what I'm going to tell you. I often now in the habit of planning what I'm going to speak on weeks, months in advance. Now take no offense, everyone here is a human being, right? So if I would prepare weeks in advance on what I'm going to talk to human beings about, the last thing I would ever imagine of doing is getting up here and freestyling or ad-lib, never. I'm going to prepare. If someone asks you to give a speech in front of hundreds of thousands of people, you would prepare well in advance. So why would we ever just start thinking about what we're going to pray about right before we pray? True prayer is prepared, meaning we think about what we're going to pray about tomorrow. The next week, we visualize in our minds what our prayer patterns are going to be like months and years in the future because we're preparing to speak to God who is a spirit. This tells us we begin to pray before we kneel and our prayer doesn't stop after we say amen. And what does David prepare in Psalm 5? He prepares his words, but he also prepares his emotion. He says, God, hear my words, but consider my groanings and cries. Meaning, David prepares his mind, but he also prepares his heart. He prepares the words that he's going to use, but he also makes sure his emotions are tempered by his mind and vice versa. There's nothing wrong in being emotional in prayer, but there is something wrong in being only emotional. That's hysteria. There's nothing wrong in being intellectual in prayer, but there is something wrong in being only intellectual because you're not giving God a lecture. You prepare the minds and you prepare the heart so that the words that you use have conviction and pressure behind them. So that's step number three. Step number four. True prayer is purposeful. True prayer is purposeful. David writes, In the morning I will order my prayer to you. What does this word mean? It comes from a root in Hebrew that refers to someone ordering pieces of wood on an altar. They would take pieces of wood and lay it out 
in a systematic, orderly fashion, then put an animal on top of that altar and sacrifice it. So when David says, I will order my prayer to you, what does it mean? He says, I will arrange or systematically, methodically arrange my prayer to God. True prayer that is purposeful means we have to have a prayer method. The method itself won't sanctify you. The method itself isn't holy. But people use methods. Why? Because methods are useful. Ask anyone in the real world who's good at something, how do you do what you do? And what's going to be the answer all the time? They have a method. And they're successful in what they do because that method works. Therefore, true prayer that is purposeful uses a method. Okay, great. What does that mean in real life? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Here is your prayer method. Symbolized by the acronym A-C-T-S. And if you've never heard of this before, write this down. A-C-T-S. What does this stand for? This gives you a prayer method. This tells you how you structure your prayer. What does A mean? A means adoration. This is you worshiping, glorifying, adoring God, honoring him in prayer. The next step is confession, where you confess your sins. There's never been a day in my adult life when I began taking God seriously where I, didn't, where I don't pray. God, have mercy upon me, for I am a sinner. There's a confession daily where you confess your sins and repent. The next step is thanksgiving, where you thank God for waking you up, for giving you clothing, for giving you a house, for all that he's done for you. And the last part is supplication, meaning you now petition God for specific requests. So purpose, true prayer is purposeful. Purposeful prayer has a method. What is your method? A-C-T-S. And what the Psalms tell us is this. The amount of time you're going to spend is going to mostly be in adoration. Because when you get adoration rights, that's going to animate confession and thanksgiving and supplication. A lifestyle oriented toward purposeful prayer is going to tell us that consistency matters more than depth. Meaning, if you are just beginning your prayer life and you now realize that prayer is not a game, it's much more efficacious to pray every day for two or three minutes, but do it faithfully every single day before you begin focusing on the depth. Because it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to pray for 10 hours one day every three months. It's much more logical, much more reasonable to focus on consistency before depth. That is true prayer. That is purposeful. Now here's my question which I want everyone to answer silently. Do you pray kneeling? Do you pray in the dark? Do you pray with your eyes closed? 
why. The Bible doesn't say how we're supposed to pray. It doesn't tell us. It says pray. It doesn't give us the actual physical posture. We as adults have to have a reason for everything we do in life. So why do we pray lights off, kneeling, eyes closed, hands closed? Why? Habit, tradition. Now, don't get me wrong. My purpose now isn't to say there is one way of praying that's more holy than another. That's not my point. Here's what I'm going to say. If the best preparation for prayer is meditation, which is full sensory engagement, eyes open, hands on the Bible, we're speaking the word, we're thinking about it. If the best preparation for prayer is full sensory engagement, why would our eyes be closed why would the lights be off? Why would we be remaining still when we pray? Question mark. Let's think about this for a second. Because if true prayer is purposeful, what does this now mean? We're going to be purposeful and realize that if certain things distract us, if we pray first thing in the morning and we're still groggy, why are the lights off? If we fall asleep when we pray, why are our eyes closed? If our thoughts are running when we pray, true prayer is purposeful, why are we remaining still? Do you know how the Jews prayed in the Old Testament? Standing up, moving around, eyes open, hands up to heaven. Amen. That's how it should be done if, if all the distractions I just talked about apply to you. Because if those things are taking away from the purposefulness of your prayer... Now you have a method and a strategy to make your prayers more purposeful. Because if meditation on the word requires you to be alert, then why should our prayers be drowsy? Here is a prayer challenge I'm going to issue to you. If all of those distractions apply to you, where you're sleepy, your thoughts are running, you're distracted when praying, here is the challenge. I want you to try and begin praying standing up. You can even go outside if you want to. Standing up, moving around, eyes open, looking up to the ceiling. Now you tell me, because here's a fact of medicine. When the body is active, the mind will follow. So, if you begin doing that, not only will all those distractions no longer be a hindrance, now what you're going to find is time is going to pass by faster. Because time does fly when you're having fun, but when you're in real purposeful communication with God, time flies even faster. So true prayer is purposeful. Five, true prayer is punctual. What does uh, Psalm 5 verse 3 say? In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to an eagerly watch. God is repeating himself. He's saying in the morning twice. He's drawing our attention to in the morning. 
Again, Psalm number 5 was prayed in the midst of adversity. David is telling us that even when stuff happened, even when he was under pressure, that didn't take away from him praying in the morning. Because when we are under duress, what's the first thing that happens? Things that are habitual, like our morning prayer time, goes out the window. But David is saying, even in spite of that, oh God, I will pray to you in the morning. No amount of schedule or danger should keep us from our morning fellowship with God. Why? Because if you're in danger, what's going to get you out? Prayer. If your schedule is telling you what to do, what's going to transform you so now you tell your schedule what to do? Prayer. What you do in the morning determines how you do the rest of the day. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Why? Because we eat it in the morning. And if you start the day off right with clean fuel and clean food, that's going to animate how you perform for the rest of the day. True prayer is punctual, and 30 minutes in the morning is worth three hours later on in the day. Morning prayer is also the freshest. Why? Because we're the most well-rested, and it's also when we're the most in need of prayer. Why is that? Because the day hasn't happened yet. If you wake up and pray in the morning, you can now prophylactically pray and say, Lord, please protect me. If you pray in the evening, guess what? Reality already happened. That thing that wasn't supposed to take place did happen, and now you're praying, God, oh God, save me. But if you prayed in the morning... You get it. The morning itself signifies fresh supplies of new grace. When did the Israelites gather manna in the wilderness? In the morning. The morning signifies the change from darkness to light. Morning is also a sign of renewal of God's acts of love. What does Lamentations 3, 22-23 say? The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Every day has its troubles, and therefore we secure fresh graces for the day in the morning. And here's an interesting point. I want us to start thinking about our morning prayer time as a morning tithe of time. Tithing doesn't just... Romans 12 says present ourselves, us, as a living sacrifice. Tithing is not limited to money. It's, It's your entire totality of being. So when you pray in the morning, you are now declaring, God, you are my maker, and I'm going to give you my freshest, most alert time dedicated to you. And because I'm now organizing my time in context to you, that's going to give meaning and animation to the rest of my day. And just as God sent out his word in the first morning, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, we imitate God and send our words first in the morning because every worthwhile day begins by praying to God. 
So that's step number five. Step number six. True prayer is persistent. David says, in the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. This comes from a root in Hebrew which means to keep watch, to be a watchman, or to be a guard. This is what David is saying figuratively speaking. When he prays in the morning, it's almost as if he's entering into a tower, into a fortress. And David locks himself in the caverns of that fortress. And now there are guardsmen, there are watchmen on that tower. And they can now look out. They can see intruders coming. They can see distractions coming. They can see habitual temptations and habitual sin coming. And because those guardsmen are now posted and are eagerly watching... They can see threats coming a mile away before they cause any problems. When we consider our morning prayer time, we shouldn't call it morning prayer. We should call it the morning watch. When we set up guardsmen on our prayer towers who now can visualize and see not only the distractions inhibiting us from prayer, but all of those threats that will lure us into sin throughout the rest of the day. But not only do these guardmen look for threats from the outside, those guardsmen also watch the prayers that David sends up to God and expectantly waits for God's response. Let me ask you three questions. If you don't trust God, then why do you pray? Have you ever asked God something in prayer but actually doubted Him while asking? If you do trust God, then why don't you expect anything when you ask? True prayer is persistent. This is what that means. Our faith drives us to pray. But guess what? Our faith doesn't shut off after we say amen. So after we say amen and now the prayer is over, our faith eagerly, expectantly watches. So we now take an, an arrow of a prayer and send it up to heaven. The guardsmen now watch. They eagerly wait to see God's response. That's what our faith does. And we don't have faith in the prayer's response. We have faith in God. So if God responds, we say yay and amen, and we go into the morning watch the next day. If God doesn't respond, our faith tells us God in his sovereign will has good reason for the delay to exist. Has anyone out there ever considered the reason why God isn't answering your prayers is because you simply don't believe he'll do it? You simply don't trust him enough and you're not eagerly watching. You basically take your arrow, send it up to heaven, and then turn your head the other way. Our faith doesn't end when the prayer is over because true prayer is persistent. That means eagerly watching in anticipation of God's response. Praying 
means you rely on God. Expecting means you are confident in him that he will answer. And when we have faith in God, even if God doesn't answer our prayer, we always know he answers us. Because true prayer is persistent. Step number seven, last step. True prayer is personal. David says, Heed the sound of my cry for help, my king and my God, for to you I pray. Here's what's interesting. David uses the pronoun my seven times in Psalm 5, 1 to 3. Now you know where I got the seven steps from. He uses the personal pronoun my, and David saying my king and my God forms the gravitational center of Psalm number 5 because David is now praying to someone who he has a personal relationship with. Because people who have personal problems require a personal God. David is just not speaking to someone who is impersonal. He's not speaking to someone way out there. He's speaking to a God that he knows and that he has a relationship with. Therefore, his prayer is personal. And he says, my Lord and my God. When you have a relationship with God, God therefore answers because he knows you and he knows you are not an alien. When you have a relationship with God and prayer is now personal, there are peculiar obligations and peculiar expectations for you as a child of God now approach my Father. So if true prayer is personal... How do we cultivate a relationship with God? The way human beings engage in relationships gives us an insight. The simplest answer to the question is this. How do you cultivate a relationship with God? You have to get to know Him. How do human beings develop personal relationships? First, they meet one another. Hi, I'm Bob. Hi, I'm Mary. After they meet, they then gain knowledge about one another. After they have some knowledge, they begin having shared experiences. And then after time, after experience, after more knowledge, now they have a relationship. Now it's personal. Here's the crucial point I want to make, church. In 21st century America, there's a crucial difference between meeting Christ and knowing him. Between meeting God and having a relationship with him. Many people may know about God, but they don't know him. You listening to me this morning, you're going to know about David. You're going to know about prayer. You're going to know about God, but that's not going to help you know him. What now changes after you've met him and acquired some knowledge is taking the truth in God's word and now living it through time and experience, applying it to your own life. 
once through time, experience, through intimacy, through dialogue, through prayer, we actually get to know God. When our prayers now are personal, do you know what now is going to happen? We're no longer going to talk about God. We're going to talk to him. We're going to say, my Lord and my God. Yes, Lord, my faith is based upon what you revealed in your word, but now that word is going to have personal uh, ramifications in my life. Lord, this is what you did for me. This is what you did for my family. This is what you did in our personal relationship. It starts with objective knowledge in the Bible, and that now informs our subjective, personal experiences. I was at a Jewish wedding last week, and in the ceremony, the groom stood in the center, and the bride circled around the groom seven times. And I said, Rabbi, I'm new to this Jewish wedding thing. Please explain to me what this means. And he says, the bride circling around the groom symbolizes Joshua walking around the city of Jericho when the walls came down. And that now symbolized because the man and the woman are in a relationship, there are no longer any walls. There are no longer any barriers because two individuals who are separate are now one forever for life in intimate communication and fellowship. True prayer is personal, which means having a relationship with God. The book Song of Solomon is called the Holy of Holies of Scripture. You know why? Do you know what Song of Solomon depicts? It depicts a man and a woman in a relationship, which is a mirror between Christ and his church, between God and the individual believer. The apex, not just of prayer, now this is our Christian life, the apex of the Christian experience is to know God so deeply and intimately that you can say, my beloved is mine and I am his where there is a deep-seated relationship and the two know one another as deep, intimate partners in a communion. The embrace of the fact that prayer is personal will point you back to the seven steps I just described. And now that you see that true prayer is personal and involves a relationship, we're not going to look at these steps as steps We're not going to look at them indifferently as a checklist to follow. We're going to look at them as the means by which we maintain a relationship. Because true prayer is personal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the richness and depth of your word, knowing and realizing that even in the obscure corners of your scripture, there is so much richness, there is so much depth, and there is so much instruction for your people. We ask you, O Lord, to implant these words deep within our hearts, that many, O Lord, will not just know about you, but they will know you. And that deep, intimate knowledge will animate relationships so that all of your children will know who you truly are and they will desire nothing more than you. 
So in their prayers, O Lord, they shall call upon you, not as someone who is unknown, not as someone who is alien, but they shall call you by your name and say, My Lord and my God. For when a heart, O Lord, pants after you and loves you with all of their being and all of their might, that, O Lord, is what a true, genuine Christian relationship is and will animate and order everything else in their life. Lord, we thank you, Lord, we praise you, and we adore your almighty name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.